Well, you, this is your this is your neighborhood. So where where are we going? Um, so this is sort of the stretch that we had talked about, mm-hmm. and I figured. So this is North High School. Right oh, here. it is. Okay, yes. I, I was wondering. That's why we started. Over That's here. Marissa Lang. She's a gentrification reporter for the Post, and she was visiting with Melissa Mejia. Melissa is a longtime resident of Denver, Colorado. And last fall, the two of them went on a tour of the neighborhood. Geography, there's like Chubby's is right there, which everybody goes to mm-hmm. like late at night. Yeah. Um, that is like Mexican food that will give you a heartburn. <laughs> but like people are diehard about it here. <laughs> um, so there's like enough around there. Mm-hmm. But the neighborhood is different. Okay. But it is not to the level, like La Almolina Park is fully gentrified. Mm. Like... Well, right, let's we continue walk. on our little, our depressing tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's fun to talk about because, like, it's, you know, talking about your life. But it's also really, really sad. On Melissa's tour of her neighborhood, you can clearly see the effects of gentrification. There used to be a whole stretch of Mexican-American businesses. A quinceañera dress shop. Stores where you could go grocery shopping. Now, there's only one Mexican-American-owned business left, the panaderia, a bakery. These days, that bakery is surrounded by new upscale stores and restaurants, like a wood-fire pizzeria. The neighborhood used to be called the North Side. After developers came in, it was rebranded as the Highlands. And as Marissa explains, the neighborhood demographics have changed a lot, too. Denver used to be a very, very Hispanic city. After the 2000 census, we saw that the Hispanic population was booming. And then as more tech companies started to come into the city, as uh, the environmental pull that drew a lot of people to move to Denver started to take off in pop culture and in in, um, people's understanding of the, the city, that population trend shifted and you started to see the Hispanic population growth rate really slow down and the white population really start to increase. Over the last 10 years, Marissa says the rate of growth of white residents in Denver outpaced the growth of Hispanic residents by six to one. That is a huge demographic shift and it's one that's happening all over the country. So Marissa and her colleagues at The Post traveled all across the U.S. to try to understand and see what this trend looks like on the ground. When we started looking into the census numbers from 2020, the big overall through line was that for the first time maybe ever in the United States, the white population was in decline. And the one place that we saw this wasn't happening. And not only was it not happening, but the opposite was true. And the white population was growing by leaps and bounds were urban neighborhoods, specifically big city neighborhoods that previously had been majority Black, majority Latino, majority Asian American. And over the last 20 years, really, but especially the last 10 years, we were seeing this huge reversal. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Thursday, April 6th. 
Today, Marissa explains why cities are getting whiter and how lifelong residents are fighting gentrification in their neighborhoods. Marissa spoke with my colleague, Kim Belware. Kim will take it from here. So what do we know about why this is happening? So in the 20th century, white folks really moved out of cities. This is what we know to be white flight. They moved into the suburbs. And cities, as a result, became extremely black and brown. They became very disinvested in. Crime rates went up. And you had sort of all of these domino effects happening. And and then in 2010, that trend really kicked into reverse. Part of it Uh, was that cities like D.C., for example, were really courting newcomers. They wanted to bring in new life into the city, and so they were reinvesting into things that they thought would attract people, like really bustling art districts or parks or bike lanes or dog parks, infrastructure that might bring in newer, upwardly mobile, wealthier people. Um, You also have certain trends like childless professionals wanting to move into the cities. And so you have a lot of single, one-bedroom, studio-type apartments that cater to people with incomes who don't have children. Um, And that goes true, too, for retirees, maybe who are downsizing and are disillusioned with the suburban dream of America and want to get back into an urban center. So it kind of varies city by city, the specifics of why people are moving from the suburbs or from a different part of the country to those cities. Um, But in general, we are seeing this push back into city centers um, from white folks. So, Marissa, taking us to Denver, what tour did you go on when you were in Denver, and who were you with? So, I was invited to come along with city councilwoman Candy Sitabaka. So, feel free to ask any questions about what you're seeing or anything. Um, She is a native Denverite, And she grew up in one of the northernmost communities in Denver, which is a very historically Latino neighborhood. And Candy had just uh, received a new crop of interns in her office. And as sort of a way to get them acclimated with her district and also with the city in general, she piled them into her mom's minivan and took them around the city. And I was able to go along with them. We're in the Five Points area. Mm -hmm. Um, So this right here... Luckily was the Black YMCA <laughs> back in the day. And it actually used to have housing on top of it in a previous iteration. So the first place we went to was right outside of the doors to her district office, which is Five Points. The Five Points neighborhood in Denver is known as the Harlem of the West. It has this long, rich history of being this epicenter of Black culture, of music, performance. And it used to be where almost all of the Black residents of Denver lived. A vast majority lived in Five Points. And as of the most recent census, that neighborhood is now majority white. It was converted, my belief, because maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist, but also data proves um, me right most of the time. My belief is that they took the housing off because that was the very beginning stages of pushing black people out of this community. When did they, uh, when did they We also drove up to what a lot of longtime Denverites refer to as the north side. It's this kind of broad description for the northern part of the city that has historically been very Latino, very Chicano, 
it's historically relevant because a lot of the Chicano movement that began in Denver started in the north side. Um, there is a long history of Latino artists and activists coming out of that neighborhood. And like Five Points, the neighborhood has gotten much, much whiter over the last 10, 20 years. Um, but in the last 10 years, you've really seen a lot of these neighborhoods that either used to be majority Hispanic or at least that was known as a Hispanic neighborhood has sort of flipped and become majority white. And the cranes are all always the cue, right? Like... The cranes over here are letting you know that this is where the occupation is starting to happen. And so the cranes that we're looking at over here, what are they building? This is all, like, they're building all mixed-use development over here. Like, the cranes and the combination of these self-storage things, the self-storage thing comes first, and then the luxury and market rate units come next. So what do we know about how this happened in Denver? Denver has been a city that has been going through a lot of change over the last 20 years, like many cities. And one of the things that I think is really significant in the neighborhoods that have borne the brunt of a lot of this change is a lot of them, for a long time, were really, really historically uh, underfunded. They did not, in some cases, have sidewalks. They didn't have nice public infrastructure. Um, they were some of the more neglected parts of the city, and that's where a lot of the Hispanic and Latino residents lived. And as the city has become more affluent, as the city has gotten more tax revenue that it can use to invest in infrastructure, uh, it has put that money toward a lot of these public works projects. In some cases, that has meant putting in sidewalks. In some cases, that has meant putting in parks. Um, in some cases, that has meant knocking down public housing, aging infrastructure buildings, and changing the, the layout into something that's more of like a mixed-income community. And it has really shaken up and shaken out a lot of these neighborhoods. And so the people who used to live there, in some cases, either have gotten pushed out or they've gotten priced out. So for Sidabaka, how has her experience as a Latina woman in Denver changed as the city has changed? So Councilwoman Sidabaka's history is sort of an interesting one. She grew up in this neighborhood called Illyria Swansea, um, which is this little strip um, by literal railroad tracks uh, in the northernmost part of the city. And it's an area that for a long time was seen as really undesirable. It's right near this dog food Purina factory. So like it can kind of smell sort of funky when the winds pick up in a certain direction. There's train tracks. It's very industrial. Um, and it, it has long been considered like a relatively poor, very Latino community. And she describes her youth as like, you know, she was poor, but she didn't really know that they were poor. It was just normal. Um, and in some ways, she had this really free experience where she remembers like running around with her friends and play playing in the street and the community feeling like a real community. Like she knew all her neighbors. Like we all watch out for each other. We all take care of each other. Anything that I need, my neighbors can help me with it. Like we, we had a person on our block um, who was like a pseudo grandpa. Everyone sort of had the same experience, understanding, culture, 
And then she left Denver to go to school. And uh, she described to me that when she moved back to Denver and she was driving around or going through neighborhoods that she used to go to or spend time with friends in or even her own neighborhood, the differences and the change over time became really clear to her that she started to notice there's so many more white people here and these houses look different and they're building all of this new infrastructure and all of these cannabis companies are opening up shop and and in her role as a city councilwoman she's made sort of a name for herself by crusading against a lot of these forces of gentrification her critics have said you know she's anti development and she's anti diversification of of you know the areas that she represents um, but she said that she's not anti-development. She just wants the development and the infrastructure to work for the people who are already there and not to leave them behind. You're kind of known as being, like, anti-development. Right. Do you think that's a fair label? No, not at all. Um, I am... I'm a people-before-profit person, and I don't believe housing should be commodified. Like, I believe in decommodification of housing. It should be a human right. And there have got to, there's got to be a way for us to guarantee that everyone can have a roof over their head. There is a way. Other places do it in the world. And in a country like ours, there's no excuse for not doing it. Nobody's saying you have to put a luxury unit over everyone's head. But a roof over everyone's head in a city like Denver is possible. And I think that when she talks about that, she's really talking about herself and she's talking about her family. She lives in a house in Illyria, Swansea that was owned by her grandmother. So it's, you know, very, very personal for her as well as being part of the district that she represents. After the break, Marissa and Kim talk about what Councilwoman Sita Baca and other local advocates are doing to stop the displacement of residents in Denver. We'll be right back. Marissa, is Sidabaka or anyone else doing anything to try to slow down or counteract these forces of gentrification? Absolutely. I, I would actually say that the community itself has um, come together quite a lot to try to hang on to as much of their neighborhood as they can. There's a collective of residents, many of them who are, you know, kind of middle-aged, moms in the neighborhood uh, who have come together to form the GES Coalition, which stands for Globeville Illyria Swansea Coalition. And those are names of three communities um, that are kind of historically industrial, historically Latino. They're trying to advocate for and preserve. And the folks in this coalition, one of their big projects is they have created a land trust. And the land trust is an effort to kind of beat developers to the properties that are going up for sale. So they're buying up some vacant lots, they're buying up homes or uh, other available properties and trying to 
number one, put affordable housing on these properties so that people in the community can afford to stay in the community. And then two, by putting it under this land trust and keeping it as part of this nonprofit, it allows for a longevity. It means that the neighborhood and the people who live there are not going to have to be faced with, you know, the home being sold out from under them or a new property owner coming in and, and doing something to it. So it's uh, it's been really interesting to see. They have, uh, as of now, um, six properties, but in the next few months, that number is going to more than double. So when I was in Illyria, Swansea in Denver, I actually went with a few members of the GES coalition to check out one of their properties that they're going to be turning into affordable housing um, and incorporating as part of their land trust. And I was out there with co-director Nola Miguel. And as she was closing up and locking up the gate, this man in a car kind of rolled up on us and, and rolled down his window and asked her if she owned the property. And he said he was a real estate agent in the area um, and was like, you know, it's a really nice piece of land. And I think as he was asking, um, I was sort of wondering if this was one of these investors who were looking to buy up properties in the area and sort of interested to see how it was go going to go. And Nola started to describe, actually, we're a land trust and our mission is to keep these properties in the neighborhood and provide affordable housing. And this is what we're doing. We're community land trust. Uh, we're a, um, a community land trust. Uh -huh. uh, we're called Tierra Colectiva. Uh -huh. And um, we're community land trust just in Global Area, Swansea. Okay. Um, and we're trying to prevent displacement, keep people in the neighborhood, um, preventing displacement. And so we're going to put three, three bedroom, two bath homes here. Three bedroom, two bath homes. And as she was talking, um, this realtor who himself is Latino, started to tell her that actually he's from the north side and his family is from the neighborhood that is now the Highlands. And he grew up watching that neighborhood change and fearing that his family was going to be displaced. Uh, do, you, do you work in, in the neighborhood well, a lot? Well, actually, I grew up here in, in Denver, and it's interesting that you bring that up because I grew up in the north side of Denver, the Highlands now. Uh -huh. um, so I grew up watching it being gentrified, yeah. like from the start to, to what it is now. Um, so it's, it's interesting to know that there's people out here really trying to keep the people in the community within the same community because uh, as many people in my community felt, we felt like we were being pushed out, like yep. we weren't welcome anymore. Um, and that's a sh crappy feeling for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's awesome what you, to see what you guys are doing here. And I do have plenty of clients within that price range, not that grew up in... Glowville, Swansea, uh, this area, but definitely people that grew up in my area that are experiencing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of the conversation, um, what ended up happening was he was like, I think what you're doing is really cool. I speak Spanish. If you need any help, let me know. And oh um, gosh. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was really powerful because I think it sort of spoke to how uh, universal that experience is, uh, especially for Latino residents in Denver, like it feels so present. It feels like almost everyone has a story or an experience about their own family or their own neighborhood or their own community transforming under their feet. Well, there's a part of this that seems kind of tricky because a lot of the things that are attracting newer residents, white residents to these cities 
are things that these existing communities of color do need, good public transportation and affordable housing. So what should the city do? What should city developers do here? Should they stop building those things? I think what a lot of people who I talked to told me is it's not that they don't want all of these nice things, right? Of course they want nice sidewalks. Of course they want protected bike lanes where they can ride their bicycles without having to worry about being hit by a car. Um, Of course they want parks that their kids can play in. But what they told me is that they want these amenities to benefit the people who live there now, who have suffered through the hard times, who have dealt with the disinvestment and the areas when they were neglected. And they don't feel like it's fair that when the money finally comes in and when the investment finally comes through, these folks are the first to have to leave or are the first to be pushed out and who can't reap the benefits of uh, this new Denver. Something that I hear a lot when I'm writing about gentrification Mm -hmm. or neighborhoods changing is people saying, well, like, why wouldn't someone like you, why wouldn't, like, a family like yours want these things to come into their community? Like, why wouldn't they want? Because from sort of a big picture standpoint, you can see things like maybe crime rates are going down or investment going up or the schools getting more amenities or whatever. And they look... Like improvements. Right. So why would, just give me a response to that. Like, why would you say, in your view, like things have gotten worse mm-hmm. when on paper it looks like it's gotten better? And and that tension is real because, like, even when we talk to people in the neighborhood, they're like, we want these things. And I'm like, yeah, but those things come at a cost. Mm-hmm. And that cost, you're going to bear that cost. And sometimes that cost is so so high, you're not going to be able to be around to enjoy those things. And so, like, I think that that is, you know, we're all at different places in how much we recognize that. Um, For me, you know, I don't think that we should be deprived of basic amenities in order to protect our neighborhood. Like, that's a terrible position to be in. But the reality of it is that if the city is providing it, they're going to have to find a way to pay for it. And the way that they pay for it is by increased tax revenues. And increased tax revenues come from people who are willing to pay a higher price. And that's great, but some people can't pay a higher price. As part of the highway expansion that has gone through the Elyria Swansea neighborhood and is really threatening to to change that neighborhood, they've put in all of these public parks. There's a big soccer field. There's a new playground right outside the elementary school. And there are some residents that are like, this is great. You know, I'm going to play soccer there. I'm going to take my kids to the playground. But what they're worried about is as prospectors or investors or real estate brokers start to notice this neighborhood has nice things now. Properties will start getting flipped. Property taxes are going to start going up. The affordability of the neighborhood is going to be compromised. And how long can their family actually stay and enjoy these things as all of those things start to happen? 
What surprised you the most about this reporting and the ways that cities are changing? I think I was really interested in seeing how different the causes are city by city. The you know, the challenges that I saw in Denver are not necessarily the same challenges I saw in New Orleans or the same challenges that we see here in the district. But the consequences and the results are really, really similar. That in almost all of these cases, whether it is a community that is being transformed because of development, and it's not that people are necessarily being displaced, but that the population is growing, and so therefore it's becoming whiter. In a neighborhood like that, the consequence is almost exactly the same as in a neighborhood where black and brown families are being displaced, which is that the people who remain feel alienated. They feel unwelcome in their own neighborhoods. They feel threatened, and they feel like, what is all of this development and investment for if it's not for me? And I think that that's really interesting because it's sort of like you can take different roads from different directions and, and end up in the same place. So what is the upshot here? Are a lot of these places going to continue to get whiter? And are the suburbs, by contrast, going to continue getting more diverse? Yeah, I think the other part of this story, which, you know, definitely we will be exploring more, is the changing American suburbs, that suburbs that were really built for a particular group and class of people have changed a lot and have diversified and have become more economically diverse as well, not just racially diverse. But I think in terms of cities, cities are constantly in flux. And I think, you know, the moral of of the story is that, yes, it, it will continue to change. I think what remains to be seen is how much city governments and how much people in power in these cities want to advocate for and create equitable change. I think that there certainly is an argument to be made for these nice things should happen. Schools should improve. Parks should improve. Cities, you know, should be nice and enjoyable and walkable and full of culture and things that people want to enjoy. But if they're sort of left to move in that direction without any thought to who is being included and who is being excluded, you're going to leave behind a whole lot of people. And so I think that one of the things that's interesting about this conversation is that when we talk about gentrification, I think people often think that gentrification automatically means displacement, that displacement must happen if a place is gentrifying. And that's not true. There are ways that you can have gentrification, quote unquote, and reinvestment and a reinvigorated urban center without displacement, but it has to be intentional. And I, I think it remains to be seen which of these cities is going to do the things necessary to try to make sure that it is as equitable as possible. Marissa, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Marissa Lang covers gentrification for The Post. She spoke with my colleague, Kim Belware. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Sabi Robinson. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Tara Bahrampour and Ted Melnick. And finally, a quick request for you. We're talking to The Post's new climate coach in an upcoming episode, So if you've got questions, they can be big or small, all about living sustainably, send them to us. 
we'd love to hear from you. You can send a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.